are listening to the Soul Source Podcast. I'm your host, Raquel Amel. Soul Source exists to share stories that are shaping our world today. We go straight to the source of the information to give you the best insight on topics and to show you what's being done about these issues, as well as how you can help to make a difference. So buckle up, Soul Source Society, because we're about to get started. We do not want to be the petri dish for the nation when it comes to our schools. We can't get this wrong. This is our kids. We cannot simply take a chance on our kids. Hello, I'm your host, Raquel Amell, and today it is a topic that is on pretty much any parent's mind. And if you're a teacher, well, you're going to want to listen into this one. Schools are figuring out how to reopen and bring kids back to learning in the midst of a global pandemic. You might remember many schools across the United States released kids early last spring, either in late March or early April from brick and mortar classes, and kids went directly to online learning in many cases, and some were even let out of the school year early. Teachers, school board members, and top educators have spent the summer trying to figure out how to bring students back. And now, just a few short weeks from when most kids go back to school, cases are once again on the rise in the United States. The hotbed for COVID-19 around the world right now is Florida, and the Sunshine State as a whole is seeing massive rises in cases, amounting to nearly 400,000 total positive COVID-19 tests. Now, the largest teachers union in the state, the Florida Education Association, is suing the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, as well as Commissioner Richard Corcoran, the Florida Department of Education, the Florida State Board of Education, and Miami-Dade County Mayor Carlos Jimenez. In an effort, they say to safeguard the health and welfare of public school students, educators, and the community at large. The lawsuit was filed on Monday, July 20th, about a week and a half following an emergency order by Commissioner Corcoran that all schools are to reopen brick and mortar learning this month in Florida in August, which is the typical month that Florida students go back to class. Many even going back to class in one week, August 10th. Here to talk with me about this lawsuit and the risk that he sees with bringing students back to school too soon is Andrew Sparr, Vice President of the Florida Education Association. Andrew, welcome to Soul Source. Thanks for having me here today. I am really excited to talk with you today, and I want to get right into it because this lawsuit is a pretty big deal here. I want to start first off with how many educators does your organization represent in the state of Florida? We represent about 150,000 teachers, bus drivers, cafeteria workers, uh, paraprofessionals, office specialists, uh, the front office staff. Uh, and higher education professionals throughout the state of Florida. So you guys really have the whole gamut. That's awesome. We do. So throughout the summer here then, were you hearing from different educators about how they wanted to reopen school? I mean, what led you to the point of filing this lawsuit against the governor and so many others? Absolutely. So Florida, like every other state in the nation, shut down brick and mortar schools back in March. Um, At that time, we moved online. And as the school year came to a close, many educators were saying, hey, how are we going to reopen schools in the fall? Um, So the governor put together a reopen task force, and we urged him to make sure he had a separate education task force that specifically focused on reopening schools with educators, with parents, with students, uh, with community leaders, with mental health professionals. Um, and medical professionals. And so unfortunately, the governor didn't heed that advice. Instead, he had a group that had uh, three educators out of 24, um, one medical expert, sort of a a hospital administrator, and nobody else uh, related to the mental health or parents or anything like that. And so we opened our own task force. We came up with recommendations. That task force included everyone I just talked about, Um, And we issued those recommendations. Uh, Again, unfortunately, 
as districts were working through this reopening, the governor came out and said, you know what, I want brick and mortar schools to open regardless of what's happening in your community, regardless of the spread of COVID, which we've seen out of control here in Florida, and without regard to the well-being of our students and our staff in our schools. And so that left us with no alternative but to move forward with a lawsuit. So who is all involved in this lawsuit? Because I know it's more than just the FEA, correct? It is. It's, we've got FEA, of course, some of our members. We also have parents. Um, the NAACP has come out in support of it. So there are other groups who are working to support it. And we've gotten lots of communication since we filed it from community folks, from uh, property owners in Florida, from citizens and voters who are saying, thank you for doing this. How can I help? We've actually heard from people all over the country asking how they can help because they're so concerned about this reckless way to approach the reopening of schools that our governor has, has gone on. And again, this isn't about whether or not schools should reopen brick and mortar. This is about parents being able to decide with their local school board, with their teachers and staff in the schools, what's best for the kids, their kids in the community. Well, you talked about hearing from people all over the nation. So I'm just curious, did you hear from any of the people in this lawsuit, the, the governor or any of the people from the Education Association or anything like that? Other than the commissioner tweeting out that he thought this was a, a frivolous lawsuit. No, we have not heard officially from anyone in the governor's administration uh, the, talking to, to the issues that we have with the lawsuit. We have seen the governor backtrack a little bit. He has said that he wants to, uh, you know, he wants to give more control to school boards. But then he also held a press conference a, a few days after saying that, saying all schools need to open brick and mortar. That's the best place for kids. All right. Well, this lawsuit has three points within it. Can you explain those to me a little bit? Yeah, basically what this lawsuit is saying is first and foremost, uh, it should be a local decision, right? The, the local community should be deciding it. And when the governor interferes with that, he's overstepping in, in that regard too. Uh, absolutely, this should be uh, about our Constitution. And our Constitution says that the governor and the state are, are responsible for ensuring a safe environment for our students, as well as a high-quality education. And that safe environment, we do not believe is matching up to. And then the third is the safety of the community in general, right? That, that the governor has a responsibility to ensure that community spread is down and that he, working with the cities and the counties, should be doing everything possible to reduce the spread of COVID to protect all citizens in the community. And so it's really those three kind of aspects. It makes a lot of sense. Now, I know you held a news conference not that long ago. And in that news conference, you talked about this lawsuit. And one of the things that you said was that nearly 50,000 educators were surveyed over the summer, and only 5% were willing to come back to regular in-person classes. I did a little math. If I did my math correctly, it looks like that's 2,500 teachers out of the 50,000 who are actually okay with coming back. And you take that a step further, you said 39% of those educators in the state are considering leaving teaching if they're forced to go back to school. That's like 19,500 teachers. That's a big number. What does the school system do? What do you guys do if that many teachers don't come back to work? So we've been seeing that a little bit throughout the state. And first, let me say that that survey was done in four days um, over last weekend, four four days, 50,000 educators and parents uh, responded to this survey. And so what we are seeing from our, from our educators is that, look, we want to be safe. Every educator tears at their heartstring, right? We know the best place for kids is in our public schools, the brick and mortar school. 
we know that it's important for them to interact with their classmates and with the teacher because that's part of social and emotional learning. We also know that their academics are much stronger when they're in the classroom. And so that's where teachers want them to be. But we also want to protect them. I mean, teachers have literally taken bullets for their kids. We want to make sure that our kids are safe and secure in our schools. And so that tears at our heartstrings because right now we cannot guarantee uh, their safety. And so what educators are saying is, look, we wanna guarantee the safety of our students. We also wanna guarantee our safety. So second of all, you know, educators uh, are also worried about their own safety, not just the safety of kids. And so we had literally 39% of educators who have said, if they force us to come back, if they say uh, we need to be in brick and mortar schools, then they're gonna consider leaving the profession, either retiring, resigning, going to find another field or taking a leave of absence for a year. Uh, some districts are working with their educators and allowing for leave of absence. Others are so concerned the number will be too high. They're telling them, no, we're not going to allow for a leave of absence and your only alternative would be to resign. So there's a massive teacher shortage in Florida. Last year, we started the year with over 4,000 classrooms without a certified teacher. And in January, just before the pandemic, there were still over 2,000 classrooms without a certified teacher. So this is going to make the teacher shortage much, much worse. And so that's a concern for all of us in the field of education. So how can you teach kids then if you have such a short number of teachers? Yeah, it makes it a lot harder. And, and that's why we think school districts need to step up and, and really stand up to the governor and to the commissioner and do what is right for our community. We have parents who are saying, as a matter of fact, that they don't want their kids in brick and mortar schools right now. Uh, two of our districts, one of them, Orange County, which is Orlando, uh, they've done a survey and they have found that over 70% of their parents are saying they're not sending their kids back to brick and mortar when given the option. The county next door to it, Seminole County, which is a, a suburb of Orlando, uh, same thing. Over 70% of parents are saying they're going to have their kids learn virtually when given that option by the district. And most of those parents sending their kids to brick and mortar are parents who, are, uh, who don't, don't have a means to keep their kids home because of work. Wow, that is a big number. Why do you think the lawmakers in Florida and across the nation, frankly, why are they pushing school in its traditional sense so much this fall when numbers continue to rise? I think it really has to do with the economy. And uh, the governor came out early on saying we need to reopen schools so we could get the economy going. And one of the things we've learned uh, through COVID, which is, is something that educators already knew, that our public schools are essential to our community, and to the economy. And they're essential to the community because not only do we educate our kids, we connect the community, and we're vital for that connection, but we also support the community in the economic sense as well. And so while we know the economy is important, we have seen how here in Florida, by opening too soon, uh, we saw that you know, maybe the economy picked up a bit, but now we've seen this massive resurgence and it's prolonging the economic impact. Mm. So it's a money problem. I think for a lot of people, it is. It's a way to solve how we handle the finances of our state. Um, and it's unfortunate. Thank you, Andrew. And we will be right back after this short break. When women and girls are disproportionately represented, we all suffer. 
The Women's Fund for the Fox Valley region is empowering women and girls through grants, advocacy, and education. It is all made possible through donations from generous donors like you because the full participation of women and girls is the key to a strong, equitable, and sustainable community we can all thrive in. To change the life of a woman or a girl in your community, donate today at womensfundfvr.org. Welcome back. And let's talk about the kids here for a minute and the economic impact that this entails on them. Virtual learning is great, but you need to have a computer or an iPad and access to good quality internet if you live in the country or in a poor neighborhood. So how is virtual learning supposed to work for those students who may not have the best internet access? So it is incumbent upon the community to work together to make sure that everyone has internet access. And I think the government plays a role in this, right? As well as business. So first there's two issues when I look at the internet. There's the rural community um, where internet access is not as readily available, quite honestly, because internet service providers don't want to spend the resources in connecting the rural community to the World Wide Web. And and so they tend not to go out and, and put these high speed internet Uh, lines out into the rural community. And then the second issue, of course, is in our more uh, communities of of lower socioeconomic status, our poorer communities, there may be internet access, but people can't afford to get the internet access. So again, this is to me where the government needs to step up, put pressure on the businesses to make sure that there are in fact uh, uh, internet access in the rural community and that these internet service providers invest in that infrastructure. And in our poor communities, it's where the government can step in, whether it's the national, the state, or the local governments can step in and they can provide free internet access in those poor communities so that kids can get on. So that's one element. The other element is the devices, as you said. Do kids have devices? And not just devices that were laying around in a school or, or something like that that are three, five, 10 years old, but devices that are current and have everything that kids are going to need to interact with their teacher. And so that again is a place where we are really pushing on Washington to fund the HEROES Act, which would literally be billions of dollars, over $100 billion for education across this country, but billions here in Florida that would allow districts to buy newer devices and make sure those devices are available to kids who need it. And of course, we're gonna have to work with companies who produce these devices to make sure they have enough of them, but it can be done. There's a short timeline here, uh, so it may be a little hard to get it going at first, but if everyone came together as a community, it could absolutely be done. That should not be an excuse uh, for kids not having access to to the internet. We've got to address the the digital divide. Yeah, so um, you kind of touched on it a little bit, but in those poorer districts, you know, a lot of them too, they, they tend to be higher populations of black and Hispanic children who attend those schools. And you talked about how making sure a device is avail- available to all students for those poorer districts is, I mean, can they right now, are they able to give all students a device or is that something where you would have to work with uh, these companies because that they, they don't right now have that ability? Um, I think some of our districts have the ability to give every child a device. Um, what we're seeing in other districts is they're assessing um, and asking parents. And, and so with kids who have devices at home, they don't have to. So they could, in theory, take devices out of the classrooms and get them to kid as a stop, kids as a stopgap measure. But I think long term, they've got to invest in these devices so every child has a device and we have a one-to-one setup 
Well, there's kind of multiple different crises happening throughout our nation. And one of those is also that we're in the midst of the Black Lives Matter movement. And people are seeing a lot of the disparities between people of color and the white population. It's really being brought to the forefront right now. And when I'm looking at all of this, I just can't help but see ties to that, to what's happening here with schools, virtual learning in this pandemic. Because we've been told that the pandemic, it's disproportionately impacting black people. But what kind of impact does it have on youth populations you know, knowing that these poorer schools have these higher populations of people of color and we're talking about what we're talking about right now. So I I think we know that all kids are struggling right now compared to where we were before, but especially in our poor communities because they don't have the resources uh, and support. It's also more likely that their parents are working jobs in which the parents must go in. They cannot work from home. Um, and, um, and in addition to them not being able to work from home, they don't have the resources to really uh, support their kids as maybe some more affluent parents do. And so absolutely, this is shining a light on the, on the economic divide and the, and the learning gaps that exist in our schools. And we need to take that head on, uh, which is why we really support the notion of reducing class size, making sure that the funding is there to support the expansion of these programs, making sure that kids are getting the support they need. In some cases, uh, I'll be honest, we've had uh, some of our local unions who have talked with their district and said, look, in cases where kids are coming from poorer communities and they don't have someone at home, maybe we should open some schools on a limited basis, keeping social distancing rules in place, making sure that we have all protocols come, come in place, but allowing for, for those to be places where kids can go and learn or have some childcare and some of those kinds of things. Um, so we're going to have to address that in some fashion. And we have to make sure that we're doing everything we can to get kids the, the learning and the uh, curriculum that they need. I will say this, what is often overlooked in this conversation is the punitive effects of testing. And so Florida, again, one of the other reasons, I know I mentioned economics earlier, but quite honestly, another reason they want to get schools reopened is this fixation on standardized tests. And standardized tests often discriminate against our students uh, who are African-American or of Hispanic descent. And, um, and so this, this doubling down and trying to make sure we get schools reopened so we can keep a test in place makes no sense to the overall well-being of our students. We know that for kids to learn, it needs to be more hands-on, it needs to be more real world, and not paper, pencil, testing and pushing to a test, but actual learning and getting students real life experiences. And so we're very concerned right now with the effects of COVID. Not only are you talking about limitations if we go to an all virtual model, but even with schools reopening, there weren't gonna be any field trips or field studies where kids would go out into the community or out to different activities and places. I taught in an inner city school and the school I taught at was less than two miles from the ocean and about 70% of the kids had never been to the beach. Um, so we know that that's a real challenge in, in some of our poorer communities. And we have an obligation in the school system to expose them to so much more out there that's in the world because you learn by experiencing. That is a great point. So to that point then, what do you think school should look like going into at least the first part of the year? So let's say just getting to December, to Christmas time. What should school look like when you talk about the fact that there's limitations to not having that hands-on learning and a virtual model that would limit hands-on learning? 
So I think there's a couple of things that need to occur. I mean, first and foremost, depending on where you are, certainly here in Florida, where we have uncontrolled community spread, even with the CDC's new guidelines, which say, you know, which are really geared towards reopening schools. I mean, that's what the president asked the CDC to do. Give us plans to reopen schools regardless, you know. Even they said, if you have uncontrolled community spread, don't open your schools. And so, uh, so for Florida, I think for a lot of our places in Florida, we have to look at the digital option um, and at least give the local school boards the ability to make that call, which they don't have right now in Florida. And if districts decide to start with the digital option, we need to make sure that the support is there for every child in the school system, uh, regardless of their economic status, regardless of their skin color and their race, and regardless of any uh, educational challenges that they might have, whether they have an IEP, an individual education plan or not, we need to work with every child to make sure they're getting what they need. Second of all, when we are at a point where we can open the brick and mortar schools, and that may vary depending on how bad the community spread is or how quickly it improves. Um, but when we get there, we have to have procedures in place to make sure our schools above all are safe. And they should be safe in the sense that we need to have temperature checks, we need to have protocols, we may have to go with smaller class sizes to ensure social distancing. We need to have hand washing stations throughout the school. You're seeing you know, the uh, FDA more and more say, maybe hand sanitizers aren't such a good idea. There's some really bad ones out there. It's better if you just wash your hands. Um, so let's, let's address all of those kinds of situations. And then we've got to figure out how we can also leverage technology in a positive way and show kids experiences that they might not otherwise have. Um, and so we've got to open up the world to our kids. I mean, that's what every educator wants. They want to give the kids the world. They want them to know that there's so much more out there than what they see every day, regardless of their economic status. And so there's probably some ways we can do that because even when we open schools, we're not gonna have those field trips. We're not gonna be able to expose students to that, those kinds of experiences right now because of the spread of COVID. And once we get to a point where community spread is down, once we get to a point where we have a vaccine going into place and we're really able to ensure the safety of our entire community, we really need to think about how do we truly educate children? Listen to the educators and stop letting politicians make this decision. Let parents and the educators at the school level decide what is best for kids and give them the resources and the tools to make that happen. Because I gotta tell you, our educators are amazing and they have incredible ways of doing things with kids if we let them. I do wanna ask you, it seems almost kind of like a, a patchwork approach, having every district do their own thing. Why, in your opinion, is it better having every district determine its own way of reopening versus like a statewide blanket approach of here's how we're going to reopen. And why do you think that that's better? Well, I think there's a few reasons why. One, right now the community spread is different in every community. And in Florida, we have countywide school systems. So they're, they're covering larger areas. And so there's, there's certainly some consistency. And we have encouraged you know, certain parts of the state to get together so for example, the I-4 corridor, which is Central Florida, uh, an important corridor in a lot of, for a lot of reasons, the, the districts talk on a pretty regular basis, and so do our local unions. Um, and so there is a way to coordinate uh, some consistencies uh, among certain parts and certain regions of a state. Um, but you've gotta have that local flexibility so that if 
community spread in your area is better and under control, you have more options than, than a place that may have a higher level of community spread. Likewise, there's, there's just not a one size fits all. Uh, if community spread as it is in some of our counties is exceeding 25% among kids, among kids, 25% of our kids are testing positive, um, that should be a concern. And yet we have other districts where it's more like 4%. So you can't really treat those two communities exactly the same. And, you know, I think a lot of your listeners may also agree, you know, we, we often talk about bureaucracy. The further away from the classroom decisions are made, the more bureaucracy that's involved, the less connected they are to the real world examples as to what's happening in that classroom. And so whether we're talking about COVID or whether we're talking about educating kids, the closer you are to the classroom, the better it is. That makes a lot of sense. I was just, I appreciate you clearing that up because I've heard that question of, well, isn't it more confusing to have so many the cooks in the kitchen basically. And so thank you for explaining why it's actually a better approach having it all be separated based on community. Listen, that doesn't mean if I can't add, that doesn't mean there's not coordination. That doesn't mean there's not leadership at the state level or the national level, giving recommendations, giving advice and giving support for what people ultimately decide is best. But it does mean there's not a heavy-handed approach and there's not a passing of the buck either, right? It's got to be that right balance. That makes a lot of sense. So my last question for you, Andrew, is what do you hope is the outcome of this lawsuit? What sort of an impact do you think it's going to have on Florida, but also at the national level? Because this could kind of be a domino effect. Yeah. So look, I think at the end of the day, what we're asking is we're asking for the governor to empower local school boards to work with their constituents, the parents and the community and the educators to make the best decision. And this lawsuit is basically saying, governor, don't overreach, right? Don't take away that local voice, support them and encourage them. And that's what we want to see happen with this. We want to be looking at the facts. Let me, let me give you some information we got just you know, over the weekend. Florida does a report they call a pediatric report. It's by the Florida Department of Health. And it talks about kids under the age of 18 um, who are impacted by COVID. In Florida last weekend, we lost a nine-year-old to COVID. Uh, A nine-year-old kid in Florida passed away. She was the fifth child under the age of 18 to pass away from COVID in the last five weeks. That's devastating. We need to know that information because we have to make decisions. And this child had no underlying uh, pre-existing conditions that anyone knew of. And so, you know, kids are impacted by this. We have seen the number of cases among kids grow from 3,400 in the middle of June to 31,000 last week. It's a huge growth. Uh, And these are, this is because in the middle of June, the governor said all summer camps can reopen. Summer schools should start in all of our schools. And we're seeing these programs. Uh, kick back up and we see it, we're seeing kids involved. We're seeing football practices where on a football team, a kid is diagnosed with COVID. We had one high school uh, in Tallahassee, the state capital, who canceled all their, their athletic programs that were going on this summer because a few kids tested positive uh, who were participating in those summer sports activities. Um, so there are certainly things we should be concerned about. Uh, we have seen hospitalizations among kids go up. It went up 26% in one week the number of kids that were hospitalized with COVID. Uh, So we are concerned about this. 61 of our 67 counties here in Florida saw increases in the percent of kids testing positive for COVID. 
Um, and, and so 61 of 67 counties are going in the wrong direction. And we're talking about sending kids back to brick and mortars. And so we feel that information is important. The governor should share it. We have the Department of Health in the state of Florida. When school districts are asking health officials, health department officials, hey, how should we handle the reopening schools? Is it safe to reopen schools? The response they get is, I've been instructed not to answer that question. We are just simply here as a resource. The governor's own administration has whole, told health department directors in each one of our counties not to answer school board members' questions on whether or not it's safe to reopen schools. That's not working in the best interest of our community. That's not working in the best interest of families and parents and kids. That's actually becoming a roadblock to making the right decision for every community. And so this is what our lawsuit is about. The governor cannot be reckless with reopening our schools. Uh, our president of the Florida Education Association, Frederick Ingram, says this all the time. We do not want to be the petri dish for the nation when it comes to our schools. We can't get this wrong. This is our kids. We cannot simply take a chance on our kids. We don't know what the long-term impacts are. We don't know when we put them in a classroom and in a school and you have hundreds or thousands of kids on a school campus, what that impact is going to be. And for that reason, uh, we took this lawsuit on because we felt someone had to stand up to the governor and the commissioner in their reckless approach to handling COVID in our schools and quite honestly, in our communities. And so that's what this lawsuit is about. That's what we hope to accomplish. We hope to accomplish getting control back to the parents and the school boards in their local communities. Andrew, thank you. Thank you for sharing what you guys are doing the importance of it and with the nation and with the world, frankly, because we have listeners all over the globe here on SoulSource. So thank you for being here. I appreciate you having me today. Have a great one. I want to thank you for listening. And if you want to hear more Soul Source, subscribe to the show. We're available wherever you listen to podcasts. If there's something you want to talk about on the show, we can do that too. We have a Facebook group called the Soul Source Society, and it's where we interact with listeners, share special content only seen in that group, talk about shows, get ideas for future podcasts, and overall, we just have a lot of fun. That's Soul Source Society on Facebook. We hope to see you there. Soul Source is brought to you by Red Shoes Inc., a leading agency specializing in crisis and strategic communications, media relations, social media, and so much more. To learn more about Soul Source and Red Shoes, visit us at redshoesinc.com.